compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. This week, by the way, is sort of a, a little bit of an odd week. Uh, Pastor Jordan and I planned originally to start a new series today on spiritual health is what we were going to talk about. Um, we figured, you know, everybody gets through the Christmas season. We've eaten too many Christmas cookies. We're all about ready to go back for our gym membership. We try to focus on physical health and getting in physical shape. But Pastor Jordan and I are, were originally planning to start this week a six-week series on spiritual health and spiritual shape. And what does it mean to be a, a healthy Christian? And by the way, a, a healthy Christian is just not somebody who can win the Bible trivia contest. But the way it worked out this week, it just didn't seem like today was the right Sunday to start that series. Uh, the Spencer campus, today is the last time they're going to be in the old facility. Beginning next week, they'll be in the new facility. Is it complete? Is it all perfectly ready? No, but at least they can move in. So it seemed like it would be good to start the new series as soon as they get into this new building, which makes good sense. So here I was with just this odd open Sunday with no particular series that we're in, no particular topic we have to talk about. Which, by the way, for a pastor, is extremely daunting when somebody says, you can preach on anything you want. It's like, everything's good. It's like, what do I choose at the buffet? I only get to choose one thing. So I was praying about it and thinking, you know, what should I talk about? I should talk about something that we haven't talked about recently as a church but something we probably need to talk about as a church. And what kept coming to mind is the topic of parenting. We haven't talked about parenting for a while, but it's something that's pretty important out there. Now, by the way, um, parenting, just to be honest, is a very uncomfortable topic for me to talk about because quite honestly, I feel extremely inadequate as a parent. Um, my kids are out of the house. Uh, now I look back and um, I see all these things I wish I had done differently. I see all these things I wish I had done better. You know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right, Mom and Dad? Yeah, everybody's, yeah, amen, preach it, brother. Yeah, exactly. We see how we'd like to do things differently. But, you know, I can't do that anymore. It's, it's done with. But um, as I look at this topic and I see my own, own inadequacies in this topic, I want you to know that as I share this morning, I'm not sharing as a pastor or a father who had his act together, and I want to show you how to have your act together as a parent. Absolutely not. Uh, I'm sharing as a fellow struggler, somebody who is desperately looking for help on how to parent well and turning to the Word of God looking for it. Because that is where our only hope and indirection is found. Because parenting, by the way, is going to be a pretty difficult and very complex task. Um, we're going to use one verse that will be sort of the center focus of our teaching this morning on parenting. And it's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. By the way, it's a short enough verse. It's a simple enough verse that if you haven't memorized it, I'd encourage you to memorize this verse. If you're in an Iron Man group like myself where we memorize one verse a week, this is a perfect Iron Man verse. It says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's a negative part. Uh, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. And then it's a positive part. Bring them up 
in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what Paul is doing in this one verse is putting parenting in sort of a nutshell. Uh, this is what you don't want to do. Get your kids angry, irritated, and frustrated. This is what you do want to do. Teach them about Jesus. Teach them God's word. And so he's trying to boil parenting, which is a very complex thing, down to something that is really simple, really easy, and really memorable for all of us. What we don't do and what we actually set out to do. Now, before I get into this verse, and I will take it apart and we'll unpack it and we'll apply it, I want to begin with some background. And that is, I just want to begin by looking at parenting today. Parenting today is hard. That is the first thing you need to know. Um, children, by the way, you'll notice today are extremely expensive, right? First service did the same thing. You know, you need a bigger house when you have kids. You need bigger clothes, or bigger car, rather. You need lots of clothes. <laughs> Maybe you do need bigger clothes. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you need that medical... <laughs> you need an expensive medical plan. And then when your kids get to become teenagers, your food bill is the same size as your mortgage payment, right? Yes. Yeah, because they eat everything in the house. That's the way it is. And then when you have this thing called college and you're desperately trying to find a way to set aside money to save for college and prepare for college, but there's so many expenses in ordinary life that it's almost impossible to prepare for your child's future life in college. Now, raising kids is not just hard for all the expenses that are involved, but it's, ex it's hard for parents because kids nowadays are involved in all kinds of activities. You are a total taxi service, hardly ever home, running every which direction. Kids are involved in dance, in softball, in baseball, and in wrestling, which, by the way, is the best sport to be involved in. Just want to be telling you my thoughts. They're involved in football. They're involved in jazz band. They're involved in pep band. They're involved in ice hockey. And you know I could take the rest of the sermon just keeping that list going right there. So you're running every which direction. And by the way, the costs of these kids' activities, they're not cheap, are they? There's always lots of fees, and then there's hotels, and then there's travel. But while parenting is hard nowadays, especially hard for parents, I want to be honest that I think it's actually much harder for children. I think this is a really hard world for kids to grow up in. There's pressures that they face. A lot of pressures that kids didn't face in previous years. And I want to look at what are some external pressures that kids face today, and then we'll look at some internal pressures. So external challenges that make parenting hard. You know, in the past, life used to be a lot simpler. You remember the days, we talk about these, where kids grew up on the farm. They grew up around mom and dad, and mom and dad and the kids ate together. Even as they got older, they worked together on the farm. And a lot of the influence of society and culture was not pushed into your children. Right, Cheryl? Yeah, she knows. But uh, today, it's a little different. Now, by the way, even if you didn't live on the farm, even in the past, if you grew up in an urban area, there still was the protection of parents, there was the protection of teachers, there was the protection of society and church that kept a lot of society from being pressed into the children. 
In fact, in the past, children uh, experienced what is called incremental learning. That is, the exposure of information to children only when they were mentally and psychologically mature enough to handle the more challenging issues of life. You remember that? When kids were young, they could only learn certain things, and as they got older, they could learn more things. An example of that was when I grew up, I liked plastic models. You guys ever grew up building things? And I loved the models, and I had this thing where I liked some of the more complex and difficult models. My parents would look at it and say, nope, nope, that's for anybody who's over age 14. You're not getting that one for Christmas. You're seven. You know, and so uh, they, I would not be exposed to those kind of more challenging things because that was just the way it was for kids. But um, today it's different. Neil Postman, who is a professor at New York University, has said that childhood today has been completely, almost, and totally eliminated. Children from the youngest of ages are treated like adults. They're exposed to adult-level challenges and adult-level problems, even when they're just little kids. And their minds and their development and their understanding of the world is not adequate to handle those adult-level challenges. And in his writings on this, he gives some fun illustrations, then he gives some more serious illustrations. So I'll give you first the fun-level illustration of what he calls the elimination of childhood in the modern world that makes it so difficult for kids to grow up. The first thing he talks about is this. Youth sports have eliminated childhood. In the past... Kids played their own games. They played without adult supervision. They went out in the backyard. They made up a game. They played a game. It might be hide-and-seek. It might be tag. It might be dodgeball. It might just be kick the can. They had fun. No pressure. Just go play a game. But today, it's not working that way anymore. Now, kids play adult-level games from the very youngest of ages. Kids have full uniforms. They have umpires. They have referees. They have spectators in the stands. Kids from the youngest of ages are playing full tackle football with pads. Now, not in Iowa, but in Michigan, where I came from, it was full tackle football from day one. I mean, that's when they're little tiny kids adult-level games. Now, parents, you know how we are. We have to start our kids early in these things because if they're going to win a high school championship, we have to start them at age five. Start preparing them and start training them and bringing them to all different kinds of camps and all different kinds of training so they will hopefully succeed. And the problem is, of course, that the reality is we're not in it so our kids have fun. We're not in it so our kids develop and mature. We're actually in it for our own ego. Because when our kids succeed, that just gives us value, and we think we're successful, so we're actually trying to live our life through our children. Now, that doesn't mean that all sports for children are that way, but that's a tempting part of society, isn't it? To get drawn up into those things. So the elimination of child sports and adult-level games from the earliest of ages is one example, sort of the fun example of how he says childhood has been eliminated. Now let me give you a more serious example. That's called television and the Internet have eliminated childhood. In the past, parents and teachers controlled what children were exposed to, 
what kind of information they were given, and to make sure it was an age-appropriate thing based on the age of the children. With television and the Internet, all that has been flattened. Because kids can turn on the TV and see all kinds of adult-level information on if they can find the channel at whatever hour they choose to watch the television. Kids can go to the Internet if they know how to search, and there's no protection in that search, they can find some really adult-level stuff when they're young. Eight- and nine-year-old boys finding hardcore pornography, and because they're too young to understand the danger of it, and this because their boys are drawn into that, finding themselves addicted to those kind of things, controlled by those kind of things, living in shame as eight- and nine-year-old boys. And if you looked at the research on this kind of stuff, and I've seen some of this research, it talks about how when boys in their very developmental stages, being young, are exposed to all kinds of pornography, it actually serves to rewire their understanding of sexuality. It serves to rewire their very brain and the way they look at someone of the opposite sex and how devastating this is to young boys. But with the Internet and an unfiltered Internet connection, kids can find all these kind of things. Childhood is gone. Adult-level stuff from day one. Uh, to give you an illustration of this and how it affects adolescence, I ran across this illustration I thought I'd share with you. Now, I know this is a touch dated, but I think its point is still appropriate. In 1950, the ratio of uh, significant juvenile crime to adult-level crime was 215 to 1. Let me explain that. For every serious piece of crime, and 215 adult crimes, there was only one juvenile crime under age 14. By serious crimes, that's we're talking murder, we're talking rape, we're talking robbery, those kind of things. In fact, at 1950, there was only 170 occurrences of serious crime by children under age 14. But go 30 years later, to 1980, and that ratio has gone from 215 to 1 to 5 to 1 in 1980, before the Internet, really. For every serious five adult crimes, there was one serious juvenile crime. And the author in that study, and they were looking at it, was saying, what is the big changing factor? And he believes that it has to do with the media, the exposure of television and movies, and all kinds of things that were pressing their way into young children's life. This is an 11,000% increase in only 30 years. I was not able to find that data for today, where we don't move from television, we move to the Internet itself, but I assume it's probably going to be worse. And maybe not in our particular community, but across the country, yes, that children under age 14 are committing serious level crimes because it's been pressed into them from society. So this is why I want to begin by saying, you know, parenting is hard. And even being a kid is hard because of the world we grow up in and the stuff that is pushed into them. The next thing I'd like to look at about parenting is hard is the internal challenges make parenting hard. 
while it's very true that uh, the internet and the world around us is pushing all kinds of adult level temptations into a child's life, the truth is that it is not the world that is forcing our children into sin. No child is born innocent. Every child, no matter how cute or how cuddly they are, according to scripture, has an evil, sinful heart from the moment they come out of the womb. The truth is that um, the seed of every evil known to man dwells in an innocent child's heart. Now, to proof of this, I just want to talk to the, those who are a little bit older, whose kids are out of the house, those who have already had kids. What is the first word a child learns to say? And they say it repeatedly. No. Why is it not yes? I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to do what you want to do. I've got my own direction, my own desires. Don't tell me what to do. And by the way, if you still doubt me, realize that your children's heart is no different than your heart. And if it's no different than your heart, then guess what? Your child has a sinful, evil heart. Now, all that to say that children, if they're left on their own, and there's no correction in their life whatsoever, they will end up at a very tragic end because they will pursue the evil desires in their heart. Mom and dad, one of your job is to curtail that, uh, to put parameters on that, to create some discipline, uh, to create some direction and say, no, don't go there. You have to introduce them to the fact that when you choose sinful things, there are undesirable results from those things. That's part of the things that parents are to show their children. Because if they don't learn that there are consequences to sinful choices at home in the safety of their parents who love them, they'll go out of the house and choose sinful choices, and they'll learn it in the world that there are some really painful consequences to sinful choices. And then they learn it for all eternity. It's called the lake of fire. But there's consequences for sinful choices. Uh, the scriptures say this in Proverbs 22:15, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. All children by nature are foolish. By nature, they are sinful. And part of a parent's job is to correct them. Now, correcting them with a spanking is not the only way to correct a child. It's one of the ways to correct a child, but this verse tells us that that way is not off the table, and sometimes it may be necessary. Romans chapter 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Even our sweet, innocent children have sinful hearts. The Bible says the parent's job is to curb the sinful desires of a child. That if a child is left to himself just to carry out all the sinful desires of his heart, it'll end up in a tragic life. David says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. What he's saying here is the fact is that even when he was born, 
from the very beginning of his life, he had a sinful heart. Now, number one, as I said, the parent's job is to discipline their child, to correct them from sinful behavior, and to know there are consequences for sinful behavior. But that's not the only job of a parent. The job of a parent is also to tell them why there are evil desires in their child's heart. That's our sinful nature. And to tell them not just that there's consequences, but there's a God who loves us. It's the gospel. A God who sent his own son to die for us. Died in our place for our sin. And then this is what we tell our child. You know, God loves you so much that not only did his own son pay all of the consequences for your sin, but when you ask him to forgive your sin, he doesn't just pay the consequences for your sin, but the Bible says he gives you a new heart. A new heart that delights in obeying Jesus, not in rebelling against Jesus. Now, do we still have a battle between our old nature and our new nature? Oh, yes, that battle will wage for all of our life. But it won't just be our old nature. It is our old nature now with our new nature, our new heart that desires to follow Christ. And you teach your child, it's like two wolves, you know? Which one are you going to feed? If you feed your old nature, it'll get stronger. If you feed your new nature in Jesus Christ and walk with him, it'll be stronger. Feed your new nature and walk with him. That's the secret to being able to handle the sinful desires of life. So, by way of background, number one, parenting is hard. Hard for mom and dad because kids are expensive and difficult. And it's really hard for kids with the external pressures of the world and their own sinful pressures in their own heart. But that being said, I want to look at the other side by way of background very briefly. We still need to understand that children are a gift from God. Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, and notice what she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Her son was a gift from God, not an accident, not a mistake, a gift. Every child is a gift from God. And then a little later in verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. God is the one who has given me the gift of another child. Children are a gift. And then here is the, probably the best one. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. So that's the background. Now let's dive into Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And remember, it's two parts. What we must not do, and then what we should do. So let's begin with the first. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And I should tell you that why this is directly addressed to fathers, this is not intentionally trying to deny mothers. Moms, don't provoke your children to anger as well. I'll, you'll see why this is specifically written to fathers, but it, it's not intended to deny mothers. Here's the reason. 
if you understood the background, it would make sense. Here's the first point, patria potestas, that's uh, Greek, by the way, it means the father's power. It was law for Roman fathers. In this world, the first centuries, fathers had absolute, total power over their children. They could sell their children as slaves if they wanted. Fathers could chain their children and make them work in the fields. Fathers could punish their children in any way they saw fit, including executing them. When a child was born, that child was put at the feet of the father. If the father picked that child up, it was accepted into the family. If the father turned and walked away, that child was taken away, and it was abandoned in the city to be picked up and used to be raised as a prostitute or a slave. If it was in the country, that child was put in the woods to be eaten by animals. That gives you an idea of the kind of power that a father had in that society and the rulership and authority over their children. Now, I know there's some of you are thinking, well, that really can't be true. That kind of level of authority? There's a, a quote I ran across, actually first when I was in seminary reading some ancient Greek literature, some of the other pieces of Greek writing from the time of the New Testament we have just to understand the culture of the ancient world. And this is a letter we have. It's written from a guy named um, Hilarion to his wife named Alice. Hilarion is a Roman soldier and he's writing to his wife. And look what he says. It's, the year is 1 BC. Hilarion to Alice's wife. Know that we are still now in Alexandria. Do not worry if when all others return, I remain in Alexandria. I beg and beseech you to take care of the little child, and as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. Now here she's pregnant at this time. If you have a boy child, let it live. If it is a girl, throw it out. I give you an idea of a father's power and the harshness of fathers in the ancient world. Here's another quote from Seneca. We slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge the knife into the sickliest of cattle, children who are born weak and deformed, we drowned. So when Paul writes this letter, and he's writing to the Romans, he's writing to the city of Rome, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. We are not the kind of fathers as Christian fathers like the rest of the world. We cheat our children with love. We cheat our children with care. We, cheat our we treat our children with respect. We are notably different. We're not harsh. We're not abusive. We're not mean. Now, I know some of you are saying, thankful we don't live in the first century where fathers could be so abusive to their children and parents could be so hard on their children. Folks, we're actually not much better. I put this statistic down for you. In 2020, as a nation, we aborted 930,160 children. Parents killed their children while they were in the womb before they could come out and scream. By the way, somebody was mentioned to me from last service. By the way, this is one of the great ministries of the church. It's called adoption. We, we cannot be able to stop people aborting their children, but we certainly as a church can reach out, adopt, and bring into our home other unwanted children. Because that's what Jesus did for us, isn't it? God adopted us 
so we adopt others. Well, I showed you how uh, in the ancient world what the background of this is when Paul says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. But then the question becomes, well, how do we apply that? How can we provoke our children to anger today? And I made a list up, so if you don't like my list, make your own. Uh, But hopefully some of these will be helpful for you. And maybe you'll think of others. Here's some ways we can provoke our children to anger. Number one, spoiling them. Giving them anything they want whenever they ask for it. No sense of delayed gratification, never teaching them to say no, never teaching them they have to wait. Just spoil them. That'll provoke them to anger. Here's another one. Nag them instead of disciplining them. You know what nagging is. It's constantly bringing something up again and again and again, like a little side jab, a little poke all the time. When your kids do things wrong, always reminding them, yeah, just like you did when you did this, and just like you did when you did this, and you just nag them again and again. That provokes them to anger. Here's what you do. When kids do things wrong, you discipline, you get it over with, and you move on, and you don't keep regurgitating it on top of them again and again and again. Because it just gets them angry, because they can't ever feel like they're forgiven. They can't ever feel like they've moved on. Another one, foster dependence on us, instead of independence from us. We're trying to train our kids to be mature adults and to be able to live on their own. Now, sometimes it's, you know, mom and dad, we do all the kids' laundry. We don't have them do the laundry. We do all their banking. We pay all their cell phone bills. We do everything for them. And as they get older, they haven't learned to be independent from us. So we have to work on independence which means, by the way, they're going to make some mistakes. And they're going to have to suffer some consequences. But when it happens once, guess what? It won't happen again. That's part of learning them to grow. Criticizing our spouse in front of them so they learn to disrespect. Uh, this is when you have, like, a, say, a, a mother and a daughter, and the mother criticizes you know, the father, behind the father's back and the, the daughter's hearing it and so the daughter hears how mom is so critical and so nasty either apart from the father or in front of the father and what does she learn? To do the same way, do the same thing. She learns to speak disrespectfully to her father or disrespectfully ultimately to her husband when she gets married because she saw that modeled in her home. So the idea is we don't want to be criticizing our spouse in front of our children. We want to be respecting our spouse in front of our children so they learn to respect their spouse. Another one, do everything for our children. Don't give them chores. That's not a good thing. Children have to learn to carry some of the weight of responsibility when it comes to running a home. You know, if mom and dad do everything and all the kids do is sit in the corner and play video games, that's a major disservice. Now, one guy I was talking to, he's like, his chores for his kids, they have to feed the chickens. That's their job. If the chickens live or die, it's based on the kids. You know, they, you got to remind, remind them, you got to help, but they have to carry some real responsibility. Other parents have their kids take out the trash. They have to participate in the home. And to not have them do that is a disservice to them. Here's another one. When our child throws a temper tantrum, just give in. Oh, that's not good. Because what that teaches your child, if they want something, if they can yell long enough, if they can scream long enough, if they can make a big enough fit, they'll get what they want. Because eventually mom and dad will give in. 
I know my kids learn sometimes that they would throw a fit. I'd say, you know, the longer you yell, the louder you yell, the less likely the answer will ever be yes. Because temper tantrums do not make you give in. Here's another one. Criticizing when at home. It's so easy to do that. Criticize the politicians around us. Criticize the coaches around us. Criticize the neighbors around us. And just get in the habit of like constantly throwing people under the bus when you're in the safety of your home. But if your kids see you as a parent constantly being critical of people all the time, what are they going to learn to do? Constantly be critical of people all the time. And then when they get into their own home, what are they going to do? Be critical of their spouse, critical of others. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't be able to discuss things like politics. This doesn't mean we shouldn't be able to discuss things that people do. But we have to learn to discuss those things in a constructive way, in a positive way, in a solution-oriented way, not a constantly critical and demeaning way. Or our children learn that, and that is no service for them. Here's another one. Praise our children for their looks, but not for their character. This is especially important for mothers with daughters. Oh, you look so beautiful. We have to have you look so good. What really matters much more than her looks is her character. Praise the character and let her know that. If you don't, you'll regret it. Here's another one. Be an overprotective parent. And by that I mean some Christian parents who are so well-meaning and so good-hearted, they are protective of their children. They're trying to protect their children from the world, which is part of the job of a Christian parent. But then there's this overprotective side, where all the way through high school, the kids can't do anything on their own. They can't make any choices. They're constantly under their parents' fingers at all times. And then they go to college, and they get on their own. And what happens? They fly off the handle because there was no like off-ramp from the home, no gradual releasing of responsibilities, just an instant release, and it doesn't end well. Here's another example. Showing favoritism will, will create all kinds of um, issues. And we see this in Scripture. Remember, Isaac favored Esau over Jacob and created tension in that home, and Rachel faced Jacob over Esau and all kinds of stuff. If you have children, you'll notice you raise them in the same home. They were born from the same parents, but by the way, they can turn out very differently, right? Now, some kids may be easier than others, but do not show favoritism of one kid over the other. Because if a child all of a sudden realizes that their brother or their sister is the favorite and they're not, that creates all kinds of friction between them and their parents and between them and their brothers and sisters. You have to work very hard to be even-handed and love them all the same, even though God has made them differently. Another way to provoke them to anger is to have unrealistic achievement goals. And what I'm talking about is parents often have high expectations of their children. You know, you have to have good grades. But then there are parents that say you have to have all A's. Anything less than an A is unacceptable. You have to be on varsity in every single sport. You have to be on the absolute top of every single band or musical performance out there. In um, Asian culture, this is called the tiger mom. You ever heard of that one? 
the mom has super crazy high expectations and makes their child practice for hours and can't even let them eat until they're done. Now in Asian culture, if you study this, what you find is there's actually a high rate of child suicide. Children who feel like they cannot measure up to the ultra-high expectations of their parents end up taking their own life because they feel like they fail mom and dad because they can't be perfect. That kind of expectations is very unhelpful. It frustrates a child. Here's another one. Don't sacrifice for our children. When we have children, as I said in the beginning, there's all kinds of sacrifices we have to make of our time, of our career, of our money. But as you're making these sacrifices, if all of a sudden it starts to leak out to your children that if I didn't have you, we would be doing this. I wish I wouldn't have to spend so much money for you. And the kids are realizing that you're griping over making a sacrifice for them. What do you think that does to their heart? How loved do you think it makes them feel? It doesn't make them feel loved at all. I think of a friend of mine, and his daughter actually works as a full-time live-in nanny for a very wealthy family. And that's so mom can go out to lunch. That's so mom can go to the office. That's so mom can travel because she has a nanny who takes care of her children full-time because she doesn't want to be inconvenienced with all that weight and responsibility. Oh, that is a disaster waiting to happen because the kids are getting the message that they're a burden, that they're an inconvenience and their mom would rather do something else than be with them. That'll frustrate them. Here's another one. Neglecting time with our children. Sometimes we can be very busy in, the, in life and work that we don't intentionally make time and make memories with our kids. Um, a biblical example of that was Absalom. You know, David, you know, king, really busy, all kinds of kingly stuff. He has all kinds of wives, all kinds of children, and did not spend time with his children. And Absalom, who didn't get time with his dad, sort of became bitter towards his dad, angry towards his dad, eventually hated his dad, and tried a coup to dethrone and kill his own father because he did not have a healthy relationship with his father and didn't have healthy memories made with his father. One more. Here's one for you. We can provoke them by speaking hurtful words to our child. Give you an example of this. Um, you know, growing up, well, before I give you the example, say it this way. When you're frustrated with your child, do not tell them, boy, are you stupid. Boy, are you dumb. Don't ever say those kind of things, because when you say those words as a parent to a child, those words get hooked in the back of a person's mind. And when their kids grow up to be an adult, they'll still hear their father or their mother's words ringing in the back of their heads. When they're facing a, a, a tough challenge in their life, it's like, yeah, I'm stupid. That's what my dad said. They hear it. Uh, an example of this was when Cindy and I were first married. And um, she would cook dinner. And I remember she cooked some beans. And she served them. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. These beans are overcooked. Now, for a guy who spent a lot of years living out of a can, trust me, the beans were not overcooked. They were wonderful. And I looked at her like, why do you think these beans are overcooked? They're great. You know, a few weeks later, we have beans again. And guess what she said? Oh, I'm sorry. These beans are overcooked. 
And this happened a few times, and I said, we got to talk about this. Why do you think the beans are always overcooked? They're fine. And growing up in her house, when she helped her mother, one of the things she was always to do was to cook the beans. And they would serve it at the table. And what was the thing her father always said when the beans were served? Why are these beans overcooked? And she can still hear that voice in the back of her head every time beans are served. See how we can provoke our children to anger? Well, that's the first side. We don't want to provoke our children to anger, but the other side is this. We want to bring up our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And the first thing I want to point out for you is this little phrase, we want to bring them up, which means we must bring up our children intentionally. Children growing up in your house, it does not necessarily mean that they will come to grow to be mature Christians. The baton will not necessarily pass into their hands unless mom and dad have an intentional plan to make that happen. Now, I'm going to tell you what we had as an intentional plan, and you'll probably have a better one, but I'll just tell you how we tried to raise our kids. And this is one of my, some of my favorite times uh, from years ago. We had a big Bible story book about yay thick. It was pictures and words. And what I would do, my boys were young. They were in the same room. They had bunk beds. They would get in their beds at night, and I would go in the room, and Cindy would go in the room, and we'd pull that big Bible off the shelf, and we'd read them the Bible story of the night, and then we'd show them the pictures of the book. The kids loved it. I loved it. Here was my strategy. Out of the Bible story, if I could, I tried to pre-read it, and I tried to figure out one memorable thing I could tell them and teach them about, about God or about Jesus or about how to live for him. Just one thing, and then I tried to figure out how I could say it in a memorable way that would stick in their head, and then I would try to show them that in daily life as we live throughout the rest of the week. Now, I'll, I'll show you how we did this with one example. Now, by the way, this doesn't always work. Sometimes it works better than others, but you just try for it. We were reading through the book of Joshua. We came to Achan, and if you remember that story, um, Israel was told to conquer the city of Jericho, and they were to devote everything to destruction. They did that, except for Achan. He took a robe and some gold bars. He hid it in his tent, thought nobody would notice. He'd just keep his little sin to himself. They went to the next city, which is the city of Ai. And even though it was a little city, Israel was completely defeated. 36 people died. And I said, what can I teach my kids out of this? And here's what we came up with. Achan stole the bacon, but other people paid. When you sin, other people suffer. I still remember to this day. One little sticky phrase out of the story. And then, during the week, we'd see something in the news, or we'd see something happen. See, he sinned, and look what happened to all these other people. He sinned, look what happened to all these people. Just keep driving that home. And so that is how we attempted to try to teach our children the Bible. Um, the other thing we tried to do, which I think is very important, is we tried to have our kids in a children's ministry at a church. Now, we are so incredibly blessed here at Crosswinds with Awana, 
I am so thankful for that, that all these kids can get together with other kids who are also trying to grow in Christ, and they, and they, and they can grow together. And I'm so thankful for our youth ministries and our student ministries. Super important for Christian kids to be together as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And for us, when before we came here, we didn't have a children's ministry at the church, so Cindy and I actually started one. It was called Club 345 for third, fourth, and fifth graders, because those were the age groups of our children, but an opportunity for them to be with other young Christian kids to grow together. So uh, that was the intentional plan we made to try and get the Bible into our kids' life. Now, I want to jump down to point B here. It says we're to bring up our children in the Lord. It says we're also to disciple our children in the Lord. The word disciple is the Greek word paideia. Now notice this. It means bringing about conformity through external motivation for change. It involves both punishment for bad behavior and reward for good behavior. So specifically it says that as parents, you have in your toolbox, and you need to know how to use it and when to use it, external rewards for good and external punishment for bad. That is part of what you need to be able to know. And he says also bringing them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We are also to instruct our children. The word instruction is the Greek word nuthea. It is instruction by word. It is explaining. It is pleading. It is reasoning. Now, here's the interesting part. I have this in your bullet point. The Bible teaches us to use both reasoning and the external motivations of consequences and rewards when training our children. We need to use both. We all know how this works. Sometimes you have like that seven-year-old boy who is completely incorrigible, doing his own thing, and the mother sits him down and says, you have to stop throwing the red Kool-Aid on the carpet. Does he listen? As she tries to reason with him? No. He's doing his own thing. He's a guy. He's like, I'm just having fun, just being belligerent, just being crazy. Mom, you can talk to me all you want. And you just like a bullet off a rock trying to talk to his heart. But as soon as she says, well, because of that, you're not going to have your friend over this afternoon. All of a sudden, he squeals like a stuck pig. You mean there's, there's consequences here? You mean I can't have my friend over because of what I did? Yes, when you do the wrong things, there are consequences to your action. Now you've touched their heart, which is why you need to be able to use both. Now, at different times and different ages and different kids, some kids you can just reason with, other kids you have to do consequences. You just have to figure out your own kids, but they're all on the table. To give you an idea of what it looks like and how this can be a complete disaster if you just try to reason with a child when actually appropriate um, discipline actions are what's necessary, what came to mind is when we were studying 1 Samuel chapter 2. Remember Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas? The guys who, even though they were adults, and even though they were married, they were sleeping with the young men who worked at the, the young, excuse me, the young women who worked at the tabernacle. And they were taking the meat that was dedicated to God and eating it for themselves. And it says, and Eli told them, sons, what you are doing is not good. He's new Thea. 
with them. He's reasoning with them. He's talking with them. But did he ever take any actions to stop them? Absolutely not. And that is what they needed. And the long-term result was God struck them dead. When the most loving thing that Eli could have done would have been to actually discipline them and remove them from their office. And he never did that. So folks, when it comes to raising children, we are not trying to raise children who are 4.0s in school. We're not trying to raise children who um, are on every athletic varsity sport. We're not trying to raise children who are perfect at every musical career. What we're trying to do is raise children who know and love Jesus Christ and who are in a growing relationship with God. If we're able to do that, that will mean parenting success. Because at the end of the day, your child may be a brain surgeon, but if they don't know Jesus, it's not going to end well. Your child may be like doing dirty jobs, it might grow, but if they do know Jesus, it will end well. So the most important thing we can do is get the gospel into their life. And what is the strategy of how we do it? Fathers and mothers, do not provoke your children, but have lots of love for them, and then bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we all want to say, those of us who have children, we are so inadequate as parents. We are so desperate for your help, Holy Spirit, so desperate for your wisdom. Thank you for the simplicity of your word uh, about not being fathers and mothers that embitter our kids but love them well. And the simplicity of your word which says we are to pour, pour the word of God into the life of our children, teaching them and correcting them, but also telling them the good news of the gospel and how Jesus you don't just let us to battle our own sinful hearts, but when we trust in you, you give us a, a new heart. So help us to parent our children. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.